Welcome to Her Story on a Plate, a place for real talk about real bodies. Let's dish about our complex relationships to food and bodies. We are two experts in the field coming at this from an anti-diet, your body holds wisdom approach. This podcast is all about changing the conversation we have in our heads and culture so that we can embrace ourselves fully. We are so excited today to have with us Amy Pershing and Shavise Turner, and I'm going to start by introducing you to Amy. So Amy is the founding director of BodyWise, the first binge eating disorder treatment program in the U.S. She's also the president of the board of the Center for Eating Disorders in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She's the founder of Pershing Consulting, which offers training to clinicians treating binge eating disorders and trauma worldwide. Amy is an internationally known leader in the field and one of the first to specialize in binge eating disorder treatment. Based on 35 years of clinical experience, she has pioneered an approach to binge eating disorder recovery that is strength-based and trauma-informed. Her approach integrates a non-diet body autonomy philosophy, helping clients create lasting change with food and body image. She is the author of the book, Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond, and her co-author, Shavise Turner, is with us today as well. So Jenny, would you introduce Shavise? Happily. Actually, I wanted to say first that I know both Shavise and Amy because we served together on the Binge Eating Disorder Association board, so it's just an extraordinary pleasure to have you with us. Shavise's dedication to health equity began early in her career when she was part of a team working to ensure cancer patients had ongoing access to critical treatments. Driven by her own struggles and recovery, which she readily talks about, she founded the Binge Eating Disorder Association in 2008. And that was to address the unmet needs of people with the most prevalent eating disorder and was integral to binge eating disorder receiving its designation in the DSM. Currently, Chavis is an eating disorder and anti-weight discrimination activist, and thank God for it, and the founder of the Body Equity Alliance, in which she assists organizations and brands create inclusive campaigns, policies, and environments that feature and accommodate higher weight people. She's also a lived experience coach and a co-founder of Attune, which will launch in 2024. Welcome, welcome, welcome to you both. It's just such a wonderful pleasure to have you here. Before we get rolling, I'm wondering if we, could, if we can do a little roll call since there's four of us on here. So everybody knows our different voices. So I'm Nina Manelson. I am Jenny Kramer. I'm Shavise Turner. I'm Amy Pershing. Fabulous. Yay! So good. And we're going to keep it that way. <laughs> and we're going we're we're to keep That's a good thing. So, so Jenny, would you kick us off? Sure. Let's hope I just don't kick us off the screen. So (laughs) we're so particularly interested in the book that you both co-authored, Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond. Can you take us through a little bit about what led both of you to write this book? I mean, it's an important book. It hadn't been written before. It needed to be written. What led you to it? I can just kind of give the, you know, how it came about. I was at a conference and um, a person 
approached me and said, you know, I know that you founded the Binge Eating Disorder Association, and I'm wondering if you would be interested in telling your story and possibly writing a book with someone who you believe is really at the forefront of this treatment of binge eating disorder. And of course, Amy was the first person that came to mind for me. And uh, so I reached out to her and she was excited to do the book. And I was very excited to have her do the book. So Amy, I'll let you pick it up from there and kind of explain, you know, what the approach was. Sure. Actually, for me, it was something I wanted to do for a long time because the in my own journey with an eating disorder, what I remembered was anything that was written, and that was back a very long time ago, but anything that was written was about anorexia or bulimia. And so what, what I had to always do was kind of adapt my experience, which was the same in certain ways and very different in other ways to what I was reading. And so I and it really never felt like I had uh, my experience was really represented. And then as I got professionally more and more involved in doing eating disorder work as a clinician, that wasn't changing. So I was still mm-hmm. kind of trying to find stuff for my clients that kind of included the experience of binge eating disorder, but it still really wasn't a core part of whatever the book may be. And so that when this opportunity presented itself, I jumped because it was very much something I had always wanted to do and was delighted, of course, to do it should be. You know, one of the greatest things about the book is that it really comes from two perspectives, right? There's the clinical focus, which is yours, Amy, and, you know, Shavise, your perspective in the book is, is particularly compelling because it's lived experience. It's also seen through the lens of you as this, you know, longtime advocate. And so I, I want to say that the folks that we work with, you know, our clients are very appreciative of the book because it really, really does bring in so many different points of view. I'm also curious. I mean, I know you had a question. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump in there. No, no. What I wanted to say really is just to appreciate both of you for stepping in and naming and holding something that many, many of us were struggling with. And it's so important because from sort of the more, as you both have done, which is put it literally in the DSM, put it Mm. in to clinical work that I don't know because you've been doing it for so long. If recently anybody has said, thank you, thank you Mm -hmm. for putting it on the map and saying, this is important. This is something people are struggling with every day and deserve to feel better with and can, because so many of my clients are like, is this ever going to change? And when we talk about it can, there's like this, like, really? Right. And Mm -hmm. that's what you opened the door to. And that's so precious. And one of the things that I want to dive under this is how does trauma play a role in all of this? Because we know it does. We know that our body remembers 
So can you speak to that? That, I think for me as a clinician, as I was learning more and more about trauma, about the somatic component of our memory, you know, the way our, our body continues to speak the truth, mm. no matter what. You know, I remember just in my own work that, or my, excuse me, my own eating disorder, that a lot of my relationship with food, food was a distraction. It numbed that experience. It disconnected me from things I couldn't otherwise handle. It was a, a saving grace. And so as I really kind of came to do more clinical work, what, what I saw was that that relationship with food saved many of my clients. It allowed them to survive the systems in which they found themselves. And so mm-hmm. one of the things I find that, and, and as the research is progressing, which is just fascinating, we're seeing kind of more and more what's happening, literally how the experience of binging impacts the felt sense, the felt experience of trauma. And so we're really seeing that binging in the short run works. It's effective. Mm. It stops that overwhelm when we're out of that window of tolerance. It really helps clients survive that experience. Amy, there's two things I just want to like yellow highlighter on top of. And one is our body speaks the truth, Mm. right? We all need to have that like on a sticky note everywhere Mm. in our life. Our body speaks the truth, right? Like like what you said, like on our forehead, tattooed backwards. So we see it in the mirror. Our body speaks the truth every moment. Even for those of us who've been through our own struggles with eating, to be reminded of this core truth. And the other thing that you said that I want to take out my yellow highlighter is sort of being in appreciation of the binging. Wow, you really helped me cope. You got me through this. You have turned down the volume on the intensity of life. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. I find that that strengths-based piece when we're helping clients work with binge eating disorder, I, I find if we can develop compassion and gratitude for the parts that went to food, as opposed yeah. to vilifying the eating disorder, I, I don't find that as helpful with BED, particularly because so many of our clients are just foundationally, there is so much shame. That the last thing they need is the shaming of a coping mechanism that helped them survive. It's not helpful. Yeah. Well, on the subject of shame, it's important that we name diet culture because it is in my opinion, you know, the thing that shames everyone and any perception they have about their own body size and how the world sees them. And it, they, they get cues from the outside world that their body is or is not okay. You know, we're living in a time now where diet culture is exploding and rampant just with the use of semaglutide and some people know as, as Ozempic and all the other brands that are out there. Shavisa, I'm I'm so curious to know from you what you're thinking about how diet culture has affected certainly your own lived experience and the effect you think that possibly the injections are having them. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything but diet culture. (laughs) I mean, there was no other culture growing up. Right. And so 
unlearning that was critical to my own recovery. And as Amy was talking about the, you know, looking at this from a strengths perspective and understanding that, you know what, I was doing the best I could at that time. And I, you know, it was pretty smart, actually. It was life-saving in, in some ways. And diet culture was a part of that. I was just surviving the culture and everything else that was going on in my life. Where we are now is a difficult time. And in some ways, I see it as a recycling of what we've been through before. And in other ways, I see it as a whole new era. Because what we're dealing with now is people who, even people who in the past thought that diet culture was problematic, are really supporting how we go forward with GLP-1s. And I'm very open about the fact that I am on one of these medications for diabetes, and it is incredibly effective. And I will say that even at the lowest dose, for me, there are quality of life issues because of gastric Mm -hmm. problems that come along with it. And I have to work extra hard at making sure that I eat enough during the day, which is, I think, can be very problematic for somebody with an eating disorder past, even in strong Mm. recovery. I I set my alarm every day to make sure I eat lunch because, honestly, I would just blow right through it. And that was what I did in my eating disorder days. And I would feel really good about that in those days. So. I think the potential for harm is really there. If someone who has a pretty strong and long history of recovery can be sort of shaken by this, even at a very low, low dose. And for me to say that, you know, some of that wishful thinking doesn't come back into my head some days, I would be lying because there are definitely days when I'm like, you know what? Even though my A1C is really good, it's like in the pre-diabetic numbers, I think I could talk my doctor into getting me on a higher dose and I could lose weight. Mm. Yeah. And so I think we're just, we're in this time and hey, I'm getting beat up as we speak online from some obesity doctors about my views on this. And that's okay, because I think there are people out there that have to hear, we don't all need to follow, follow others down this rabbit hole, because it can be harmful. This brings up the question, why are you getting beaten up by obesity doctors, right? And why do obesity doctors exist? But that's a whole other (laughs) show, isn't it? But but why, why, why are you getting beaten up when we're all like oh, laughing and crying at the same yeah, time when yeah. you just said that. Yeah. 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 Because, mm-hmm. because we're all really saying, and this is, I think, one of the cornerstones of what we're all trying to communicate. Dieting does not work, period, stop, full stop, end of sentence, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. There are millions of ways to reduce one size for how long right. and what's the objective. Yeah. 
How many times have we all heard, if I could just be that size, if I could just, just mm-hmm. that, then my life would be fine. Guess what? That's not how it works, right? So I, I think it's important for our listeners to really understand that there is no fault here on anyone's part who participates in any kind of thoughts or behaviors that help them cope. And that's the full range, whether it's a binge or emotional eating behavior, whether it's more restrictive, whether it's more you know, of a purging type. And I think it's incredibly important that we say most people run the full gamut. There's some glamour in being you know, someone who suffers with anorexic behaviors for a time, and then there's more of the shame end of it if you're on the binge eating side. What is that all based in? Perception of body yes. size, right? Yep. I know that for you, Amy, one of the ways that you've been able to really get some very effective treatment out there in your trainings and in, and in your, certainly in the work that you're doing is through internal family systems, the IFS. Can we touch on that just a little bit, especially because, you know, I know Nina is going through her own IFS training right now. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit how that works? Sure. The theory is, has a couple of basic predicates. One is that there's something called the multiplicity of mind. Bottom line is that we're made up essentially internally of a colony of different parts of us. You think about we're sometimes we feel very childlike, sometimes we feel like a teenager, and different parts can hold different opinions. If we're going to go to a party, let's say, you know, one part of us may say, I'm really excited to go. Another part may say, I'm dreading it. So we can have lots of different voices within us internally. And there is also something called the self, and that's a capital S. And that is the essence of who we truly are. It is undamaged by trauma. It is unaffected by the kind of body shame narratives that are all around us. It knows what's true. And our body is also a part of that fundamental core self. So one of the things I especially like about the system, about the idea of IFS, is the narrative that fundamentally we have everything we need to recover. Mm. That fundamentally, deeply, we are okay, and that we can handle what we need to handle to recover in the world, that that each of us has that. So I, I love that as part of the system. What IFS does is really helps us to, to heal at a core level, to heal those parts, those young parts of us that are holding the damage of different kinds of traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Those young parts have been forced into extreme roles in order to survive. And in the case of eating disorders, those young parts use their relationship with food in order to protect the system as best as possible. And we may have one part, for example, that's trying desperately to conform. That's the dieter often. And another part that's trying to protect us from pain. And that's uh, often, let's say in this case, the binging part. So IFS really helps us to bring compassion, gratitude to those parts, helps to get that authentic self in charge so that parts don't feel responsible for driving the bus of our lives anymore. It's a very powerful theory. I think it's really effective. Clients take to it. I, I find I did quite easily. It's, it, it's intuitive. Yeah. Amy, do you find that it also works in a group setting? 
because one of the things that I think the research still holds up is that when folks that are suffering are put into sort of a support group or treatment group with the proper focus, that their um, journey is really a lot better. I struggle to use the word recovery. I have a love-hate relationship with the word, but their recovery is more steadfast, not only from peer support, but also just from the group experience. Do you find that the <laughs> IFS has application there? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We are an internal group, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the predicate of it in many ways is that a lot of what we're doing is getting self in the lead of that internal group. So that group model, actually, the, it was developed by Dick Schwartz in part from doing group works and seeing the, the dynamics among participants. So it does actually have its base in, in group work. What I also find, though, is for so many of our clients, because there's so much shame, parts have really so fundamentally shut down in terms of connection with other people. People are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I talk about a lot with my clients is to think about how much time they spend moving around in the world presenting instead of being. Mm -hmm. Right? We learn fundamentally to present ourselves to other people when we come out of a trauma system. This culture encourages that, obviously, too, but particularly where there's trauma clients learn to present. So group work, I think working with other people in a place where we can be instead of present is mission critical for many people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, Amy, one of the things that you're speaking to so much is how in groups, and I've seen this in the groups that I work with, is the shame just falls away because we go, you know, but there's a part of me that won't go to a party because I'm afraid that I'll be the biggest person in the room. And somebody, and you know, three other people in the group go, oh my gosh, I have that part too. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the shame is just like, oh, I'm not alone. And mm -hmm. how powerful that is. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about shame and grief in this work. Mm. Yeah, I just to throw this out. One way I think about shame, and I talk about it with clients too, is that, you know, shame is never a truth teller, right? Shame is, mm -hmm. is protective, right? Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, shame is trying to get us to be what we have been told we are supposed to be. That is its job, mm -hmm. right? Its job isn't to speak what's true. And so what I find is I often will work with clients to develop a relationship with the parts of them that are the most shaming and mm -hmm. to get to what the fear is. What does that part believe its job is in using that shame? What does it think will happen if it doesn't use that shame? And that really helps us. It's actually frightening for clients. It's a lot of work to move around in the world without that shame. Yeah. I think we have to underscore this with one of Nina's yellow highlights again. Mm -hmm. Shame is never a truth teller. Yeah. I literally, I wrote that down when, as soon as you said that, Amy, we're going to have Amyisms, right? Yeah. Our body yeah, speaks Amy. the truth, and shame is never a truth teller. And Chavise, there was something else that is going to be like a, a Chaviseism, which Chevyism. is Chevyism. There we go. <laughs> is this whole thing of like we're in a new era, right? Mm -hmm. With this whole weight loss thing. And I actually want to reel back to that just a tiny bit because one of the things you said and the way I interpreted it was 
is that the weight loss drugs is interrupting a relationship that we're trying to have with our body. Mm -hmm. And you said it so beautifully in your story, which is I have worked for years in creating a respectful and responsive and deeply listening relationship with my body. And this drug is really kicking my butt in terms of me like having to return back. Okay, body, I'm going to support you. I'm going to support you. And if fundamentally, and Jenny, just reel back to your words of recovery, like if recovery is really being in a very sacred relationship with our own body, mm-hmm. and we've got these weight loss drugs that say, nope, there's no listening here. And it goes back to that our body speaks the truth. If we can't hear the truth, it's mm-hmm. really hard. And that's, to me, fundamentally, like, I get the appeal of the drugs, I get the impact for people who have diabetes. But for those of us who are desperately trying to be in relationship with our body, it's like, excuse me, let me interrupt that, is what the weight loss drugs feel like to me. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what the drugs are doing is interrupting appetite, which is someone with an eating disorder's dream you know Mm -hmm. we're back to the days of of diet pills essentially yeah and you know there's a lot of talk some back to those obesity doctors that don't like what i have to say they're talking about how these drugs are actually helping people recover from their eating disorders and i know they're talking about people with bed and mm-hmm. how there's something going on in the brain that is, you know, stopping them from binging. Well, I can tell you what's going on. When you feel sick, whatever that mechanism is for appetite, which is in the gut, so that's where this drug is working. Sure. And we've long known that appetite is somewhat controlled by the gut. There's no mystery here. I mean, of course, if, you know, and binges aren't fueled by appetite, but if you're restricting all day and you still have no appetite and the thought of food makes you, then you're probably not going to binge either. You're going to continue to restrict. And so this is so much more complicated than And, you know, I'm sitting here as a coach and somebody who's an activist and so forth, telling these people who have been through years and years and years of medical training, and I'm like a fly on the wall, and they're just swiping me away. But Mm. they don't have the lived experience, or if they do, they've been in a medical setting so long that they're not in touch with the shame And with everything that we're talking about here today, they could not have this conversation and they could not be there to hold this space in the way that we can for our clients. So it's a very, very different approach that is at arm's length and is medicalized, as we all know. So it's very, very different. And I would say that the reason why the medical field cannot have this conversation is because despite good training, good intentions, nice people, their lens is thin is good, fat is bad, period, end of story. 
And because of that, we're going to do everything we can to get everybody thinner because the mythology is, you know, the cause of XYZ disease states must be because you're in a bigger body. You know, and this is the classic conversation that we have with all the clients we all work with. Yeah. You know, you can need a knee replacement and you can be any size body and need that knee replacement. And it doesn't have to do with the size body that you're in. It just means you need a knee replacement for any one of 10 other reasons. I want to make one point, I think, and I'm curious to know what you both think about this, about body autonomy. In the end, I'm thinking about if I'm listening to this podcast, right, what do I want to hear now, right? Yeah, in the end, you get to do what you want. You get to make your own decisions and don't let that be yet another form of shame. If you say to yourself, well, you know what? I get it. I understand. I know I I should love my body and it doesn't matter what size is. But by the way, I think I would just love it if it was smaller. Mm -hmm. Okay. I hope that you will continue to stay in that conversation and try to figure out what that need really is. And if there's something you decide to try, okay. No one's going to judge or shame you for that. And we just hope that you will really weigh your risks and benefits. I think we're all trying to say that dieting has very high risks, no matter what the form. And especially now in this era of the injectables, you better be willing to be on that for the rest of your life. Because if you're not on it the rest of your life, that's the part two that we're going to see medically and emotionally and physically, I think people are going to suffer, right? So I'm just curious to know, as a, a final thought, what is your sense of body autonomy? I mean, how important is that in the conversation? Yeah, I'll just take this first from the the lived experience and say that it is extremely important. And of course, we should not be adding more shame to people. And we have to do a really good job at informed consent. As Mm. someone with the lived experience, I have had bariatric surgery. Fortunately, I I chose something that could be reversed because it really interrupted my relationship with food and it sent me spiraling back into my eating disorder and into behaviors that I never experienced prior to that. So you really are playing with something. And I had lots of years of therapy and counseling. I mean, we hear the obesity community will say that there are studies that say that eating disorders are not harmed or that people are not harmed who have eating disorders and go down this road. We know different and, and without going into all of it, those studies are suspect at best. And we live every day hearing the fallout from this. So I want everyone to just take away that we're not going to judge you for this, but please keep getting the help around your relationship with food and address any shame that may come up if you continue to have problems afterwards. We'll be here for you. We will be here to help. And so I just... You know, as someone who has lived through all of these (laughs) things, I'm so thankful that after I went down those roads, I still had people to come back to who could hold 
this for me and help me mm-hmm. get through and continue on my journey in a way that was going to keep sacred my relationship with food and body. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amy, any thoughts for you? Any parting thoughts about body autonomy or anything else? Yeah. <laughs> oh, a couple of One thing I will sometimes talk about with my clients is you know, you're on, on essentially the bleeding edge, right? You, this isn't mm. a cut. This is beyond that, right? That we're challenging the very narrative that body shame is normative, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. we shouldn't, if you think about it, just kind of from 30,000 feet, we should not be feeling shame about our body. It doesn't mean that we necessarily have to love everything about it or like everything about it. But if we are feeling that our body is something to be fixed, I think we need to question who benefits from that narrative, right? We really need to question the $250 billion diet and wellness industry. Who benefits from your shame? What I find with clients, I've actually done some, this is a side project, but I'm, I'm sort of working on thinking about all of this from the point of view of cult psychology and really looking at the idea of, around how we're essentially members of this cult. It's pulled us in to believe these stories. And what I find is when, when clients can really start to look at, I have been duped into this story of my body as a billboard not my body is my home. And what I find is the more that they're able to hold some of that, the angrier they get. I think that's the good because I think that anger builds resiliency. It's worth saying out loud that at the time that we are recording this, we are just about to launch into the end of Hanukkah. Christmas is coming and New Year's and, you know, you may be listening to this at any other time during the year, but we are launching into the holidays and my wish for everyone within the sound of our voices is that you go with love and compassion and kindness and don't let yourself get duped. Just pay attention to your own body, your own thoughts, your own cues, and pretty much drown out whatever's happening around you because we're all sort of victims of the same diet culture. And so it gets very complicated in those settings. And to listen, listen, like listen to these podcasts, listen to other people, create community because it's Mm. so strong, right? Like Amy, you said the billions and billions of dollars that are coming at us to not expect yourself to be like, okay, I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps and I'm going to be able to combat this myself. This is not a solo sport. This is, we need community for this. Absolutely. It's Jenny, why you and I were like, yeah, let's amplify this. Let's create more community. Let's create a new narrative together. Let's talk about this more. And I know we're wrapping up, but I'd love to know, Shavis and Amy, what's next for you? Mm. I know that there's a tune is being launched. Mm. Say more. Yeah. A tune is is based on some programming that Amy developed and that we're going to integrate into coaching for folks really around the world. And we hope to be reaching them and 
holding space for them and continuing this conversation with them, much like we all are doing already, but in a way where they can kind of come and do groups and do individual and and so forth, and a lot of education as well. So we're looking forward to launching that. And Amy, I know that for those of us who are clinicians and really want some great training too, just go to any PESI near you because Amy's got at least a couple of really great PESI trainings that are available and they're, they're really, they're just wonderful. The book is called Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond. If you haven't read it yet, run, don't walk, run comfortably, don't fall, but Go get the book because it's really worth getting or just click and it will come to you. We cannot thank you enough, both of you, for being with us, my good friends, uh, Shavise Turner, Amy Pershing. Nina, any final thoughts from you? Thank you both. It's just, it it feels like delicious to be Mm. able to sink into this conversation about like truly honoring our journeys, our bodies, the future of people feeling that sense that this is my body and my relationship. And you know what? No one gets to interrupt that. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Her Story on a Plate. Keep in touch with us at herstoryonaplate.com. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.